Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Jeremy Martins. He's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Western Australia. He's here to talk about his new book, Empire and Asian Migration, Sovereignty, Immigration Restriction, and Protest in the British Settler Colonies, 1888-1907. to It's published by UWA Publishing in 2018. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, Jeremy, it's great to have you on. So, your book takes place at a really interesting historical moment. There are these colonies in the British Empire that have been granted internal sovereignty, but when it comes to imperial or foreign affairs, the colonial office still wants to be in charge. So, so tell us a bit about what's going on at the moment. Well, in the late 1880s, as you said, um, most of the settler colonies that I am uh, writing about in Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa um, have uh, Responsible government, which, as you say, is is a form of internal sovereignty. So, in relation to indigenous affairs, for example, um, they, these colonies largely have carte blanche to um, pass laws as they see fit. Um, however, when it comes to external or imperial affairs, the uh, imperial government in London retains the right um, to override these colonies in relation. Uh, to imperial affairs. And, and so laws, for example, in relation to immigration or to other um, subjects that might impinge upon uh, the imperial government's interests can be vetoed. And so I am interested in trying to see the ways in which um, this gap between sovereignty, internal sovereignty and um, external kind of dependency uh, creates all sorts of imperial tensions in relation to immigration. And so your book you know, looks at these different colonies, you mentioned Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, where there are populist settler protests uh, regarding immigration and immigration restriction. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what the pattern was like for, for these settler protests? Well, um, I found that in uh, relation to immigration protests, you often see a pattern of um, 
popular, in some cases violent, uh, protests uh, organized by anti-Asian organizations or personalities within the white settler population. Um, many of them are actually um, uh, elected officials uh, or elected parliamentarians, I should say. And um, they are intent on forcing uh, the government of the day, whether it's in Natal, South Africa, or whether it's in Sydney, New South Wales, um, to pass laws um, explicitly excluding Asian immigrants from entering those colonies. And uh, the intent is to place pressure on the elected government of the day to pass laws that would um, restrict uh, Asian migration. Um, and again, going back to that issue around internal sovereignty, but not international or imperial sovereignty, one of the reasons why um, there's a space is created for these protesters is because the colonies don't actually have the right to um, or the jurisdiction to pass laws that explicitly exclude Asian migration. They have to go via the colonial office in London. And so this gives a space to uh, populist protesters who mobilize along racial lines and threaten violence. What type of arguments do these, you know, white, colonialists make to try to restrict Asian immigration? Um, they are largely racial arguments. This is uh, the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and uh, many of the uh, explanations or um, rationalizations for exclusion are well known in relation to um, uh, kind of racial thinking of the day. Um, there's a mixture of kind of scientific racism, but it's got a lot to do with uh, ideas around um, who is a pro an appropriate settler and stereotypes around Asians, um, in particular around uh, Asian uh, migrants not requiring the same um, uh, wages or uh, the same uh, standard of living as white um, settlers means that there's this argument that, well, Asian um, migrants will... Um, come and swamp the colonies, take away jobs and opportunities, and effectively squeeze out white uh, settlers. And on top of that, there's this idea of the white man's colony or white men's colonies, which means that uh, settlers um, adhere to an idea of, of settler colonialism that sees white settlers at the apex of the social and economic order and any threat to um, their position is um, uh, resisted. So uh, really... The kinds of racial arguments you see uh, range from everything around um, Asian uh, migrants are not appropriate or are not suitable to these colonies to really um, blatant racial stereotyping um, directed at uh, Asians, either Chinese um, migrants in the case of Australia usually, but also in relation to Southern Africa um, migrants from India. What does a comparative study with these different uh, British colonies uh, help you do that, you know, a study of just one of them wouldn't? All right. So I'm interested as a historian of the British Empire. I'm interested in how things in one part of the empire are reflected or influenced in other parts of the empire. And I think a comparative approach to immigration protests and immigration restrictions allows one to see how 
there are similarities across the colonies, so for example in Australia and Southern Africa, but also how decision making in one place can have an impact, a very big impact on decision making in another place and also how the uh, colonial office in London kind of keeps in view what's going on in the different settler colonies and and uses examples from one to suggest solutions to another, if that makes sense. While people like Henry Parks and other Australians were trying to limit Chinese immigration, there's a whole other story going on with the Japanese government. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about how they fit into all this. Well, what's interesting about um, Japan's situation is that in the late 19th, and we're talking mostly about the 1890s and into the early 20th century here, is that Japan and the United Kingdom are um, moving towards um, strengthening ties and then signing alliances, which makes Japan and the United Kingdom allies. And this, of course, is, has to be seen in the context of the war between um, Japan and Russia um, and Japan's uh, rising status and power within the Pacific and within um, in, in Asia generally. So the British government is interested in maintaining and extending this alliance with Japan. But of course, uh, the white settler colonies in particular, those in Australia, are very keen to restrict Asian migration and they see Japanese migrants in much the same way as they see Chinese migrants, um, that they should be restricted. Um, and so what the Japanese Japanese government finds um, unacceptable about uh, these laws passed in places like New South Wales and Victoria and elsewhere is that they um, lump together Japanese um, migrants with other Asian migrants, which is seen as an offensive um, attempt to uh, denigrate Japanese um, uh, nationhood and, and identity. And so what you see is a, a concerted attempt by Japanese diplomats to use their relationship to the United Kingdom to pressure the colonial office in London um, uh, to veto any laws that would um, restrict Japanese migration or at least um, treat Japanese migrants uh, in, the, in the same way as other Asian migrants are treated. Tell us a little bit about the New Zealand experience and, and maybe you could... Um you know, tell our listeners about Richard Seddon. Well, Richard Seddon is um, a, a prime minister um, at, at the end of the 19th century and is into the early 20th century and is a, a very a strident um, racist when it comes to uh, Asian migration to New Zealand. Um, but in the episode that I focus on in, in this book is the part that he played in the aftermath of the uh, Boer War, the South African War, of uh, 1899 to 1902, a war in which uh, uh, New Zealand soldiers fought alongside um, uh, Australians and Canadians and other members of the British Empire. And what you see in the aftermath of that conflict in South Africa is um, the British colonial authorities and the newly conquered Transvaal um, making plans to... Um, uh, import in uh, Chinese laborers to work on the gold mines of Johannesburg and the surrounding areas because what the war has done is it's basically shut down um, gold production or at least severely restricted it and um, in an attempt to get the gold mines uh, operational again and productive uh, the plan is to bring um, Chinese mine workers um, on indenture to come over and this is something that uh, Seddon and others but uh, 
Seddon in particular find um, unacceptable and Seddon organises as best he can to uh, prevent the scheme from um, taking place and he uses a a kind of proto-nationalist, if you like, um, argument saying that, yes, New Zealand is a member of the British Empire, but New Zealanders have sacrificed their lives for South Africa in the recent war and sacrificed their lives for the empire. Therefore, um, we have a right as New Zealanders uh, to um, have a say in this this new scheme that's going to be um, uh, you know, it's being proposed in this in this part of the world that we've sacrificed our lives to keep white. And so the the um, intersection of kind of racial ideas around white men's countries, uh, along with um, the belief that any kind of Chinese migration should be stopped, and also the idea that New Zealand is a nation that has a right to have a, uh, a say in this, regardless of what the the British government um, uh, position is. The book ends in 1907. Why is that? Why is that a historical turning point? Well, um, in uh, I, I, I'm interested in. We haven't talked about um, the uh, Gandhian um, uh, protests in Southern Africa that uh, uh, are about to take off in, in in 1907, but have just become. Uh, you know, it's become obvious that. Uh, Active nonviolence of Sachagraya is an option um, that needs to be pursued as far as uh, Indians in South Africa are concerned. But 1907 is also uh, the uh, date in which uh, New Zealand becomes a um, a dominion. Uh, it's only a, a kind of a s- symbolic change from colony to dominion, but it, uh, it's presented a, a useful uh, endpoint, so to speak. It's also the year in which um, uh, the Transvaal becomes uh, a colony with responsible government. So those things all come together in around about 1906, 1907. What is looking at this, you know, 20-year period um, of anti-Asian immigration, tell us about kind of the larger story uh, of these former British settler colonies. Uh, I mean, the most obvious would be the legacy of the white Australia policy, but, but for all three, how does looking at this period kind of inform what takes place over the course of the 20th century? Well, I think you're right. I think it's the. Um, I mean, if we, I live in Australia, obviously, and the legacy of the White Australia policy is is very extensive. It's only dismantled really in the 1970s. The dictation test itself has comes to an end in the 1950s. But um, White Australia as a as a policy lasts for you know three quarters of the 20th century, more or less. And uh, we obviously, as uh, people who uh, follow the news know, Australia has a very punitive immigration regime. Um, and I think there are, um, you know, without making it too simplistic, there are clear uh, links between present immigration policy and the, the policies that have been practiced uh, basically uh, for the last 150 years at least. Uh, so there's that. I think also, um, obviously, uh, protests against immigration are very um, much a thing of the present. And learning something about how uh, governments try to navigate these popular protests, how they succumb to certain pressures but were able to uh, negotiate others, is, is something that's useful for us in the present, given the importance of, um, you know, uh, more given the way in which um, contemporary uh, politics has been influenced by uh, fear of immigration or um, you know dog whistling r- in relation to immigration, uh, whether it's in Europe and North America or Australia. 
Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Jeremy Martins. He's a senior lecturer in history at the University of Western Australia. The new book is Empire and Asian Migration, Sovereignty, Immigration Restriction, and Protest in the British Settler Colonies, 1888 to 1907. It's published by UWA Publishing in 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.